Hello, coaches. Thanks for joining us for another episode of the ITA College Tennis Coaches podcast. This week, I am speaking with Matt Canole. Matt spent 22 seasons as the head men's coach at Baylor, amassing an astounding record of 510 wins and 150 losses, 13 Big 12 regular season conference titles, six Big 12 Coach of the Year awards, three ITA National Coach of the Year awards, two individual NCAA titles, an ITA National Indoor Championship, and one team NCAA title. In this podcast, Matt takes us through how he helped the Baylor men's team go from worst to first, what he has learned consulting for some of the top D1 programs in the country, and he also provides some solutions for common coaching headaches. If you would like to provide Matt with some of your own scenarios or ask him some questions yourself, you can do so by registering for our AMA webinar session with Matt on Tuesday, March 30th at 8 a.m. Pacific, 11 a.m. Eastern. I hope we get to see you on that webinar. Matt Canole, thanks so much for coming on the ITA College Tennis Coaches podcast. Great to be here. Thanks for having me, Dave. Yeah, yeah. There's uh, you've had a, an amazing uh, coaching career and and uh, so many different successes that that we could get into and and uh, uh, you've so much experience in this world that I'm excited that we're we're in this position to share those experiences, especially with our younger coaches who who tune into this podcast on a regular basis. So you ready to get going? Yeah. All right. So. Take you back to your early days uh, joining Baylor, and and so you, you took on that role. The team, obviously, I think were bottom of the Big Twelve, had had several losing seasons, had really struggled for many years uh, to be competitive, uh, not just within the Big Twelve but nationally as well. So, when you took on that job, did you? really believe that the success you ended up having was possible or did you view it as kind of oh, i'll come here i'll do a decent job and then i'll move on to you know more of a, a big time uh tennis program well i'll tell you one of the things i was lucky i was really stupid i still am probably but i didn't realize how bad baylor was you know we'd won one conference match in the previous seven years um and had scarcely won any even singles matches or doubles matches in the dual matches we were playing in the southwest conference at the time the year before I came, they didn't beat a D1 team. Um, now, the thing that stole me was the people, right? And I think that's something that everybody listening to this podcast has to bear in mind. You know, if you've got a great AD and a great president, um, and maybe even like we did at Baylor at the time, some people in the community that wanted to support the sport, you've got a lot of opportunity, you know, and, and really that's what it was. I was so hungry to be a head coach um, in the Power Five. Uh, but I really believed in the people. Uh, Baylor had a new president at the time, a new AD at the time. Uh, both of those guys were Baylor guys that really loved the school. Baylor was going into the Big 12. That was the first year of the Big 12 was when I came. So they were ready to really make a commitment. And they showed me drawings of a new facility. And they showed me, you know, all the things that they were willing to do to try to help us be good. I met some key people that ended up being really important for us in terms of raising money. Uh, when I came down for my interviews, and, and I was dumb enough to believe them when they told me that we're really going to try, you know, to take this thing to the top. Um, now, at the same time, you know, I was sort of hedging my bets. And I told my wife at the time, look, we're going to go down there for five years, try to get this thing going. And, uh, and then we'll get out, you know, if it doesn't do, you know, what we hope it's going to do. Uh, so I guess it's a little bit of both. You know, I did kind of in my own mind hedge my bets. But I, I really believed uh, in the men that hired me. And, and it turns out they, they were true to their word. They gave me what they said they were going to give me. 
And just out of interest, what, why were they interested in supporting tennis to that level? What, what was their connection to? Yeah, it? great, great question. They had this idea that there's no reason that you can't be good in everything. You know, um, you know, why do we have to just be good in football? You know, Baylor had had sporadic success in football uh, under Grant Taft, where we'd have a few good teams from year to year. But our best team was track and field, and we'd consistently been top five, top ten in the country in track and field. Uh, they had this idea that uh, Tom Stanton already had this idea that to be good in a sport, you have to maintain the coach. He said, you know, what he's looked around the country, his research indicated that to, to maintain a great program, you've got to get a great coach and keep them. Um, when coaches jump around, you lose a lot of momentum. Clyde Hart ended up being at Baylor, I think, for 50 years, maybe longer. Um, and, and again, he was able to set a culture. Uh, and find a way to be good, you know, at that school. And I think that's important too. Every school kind of has different knobs you have to turn to be successful in that particular situation. So they made a commitment to every sport. Um, you know, it took them a little bit longer uh, in football, honestly, but we, you know, we were one of the smaller sports or Olympic sports that got off to a pretty good start. Um, uh, soccer won the Big 12, I think the second year that I was here. Uh, Randy Waldrum, a great coach. Um, and frankly, Randy helped me a ton because he got offered the Notre Dame job and Baylor didn't keep him. And that really informed the way that our athletic department, and our university handled other successful coaches. You know, they really worked harder to keep people like me and others. Um, so, yeah, Randy kind of set the tone and then we were the first team to win a men's Big 12 championship. So that, that's a first year or two, obviously, um, you know, you didn't have a chance to, to recruit yet, but, but you're, you really had a quick turnaround uh, without necessarily bringing on a bunch of, of studs. So what did you do from a player development perspective? What did you do uh, creating kind of a winning culture in that first year or so on the job? Well, we've had this idea that we needed to work really hard, you know, and I think everybody says that, right? But we thought we could work hard and work smart. We really worked to educate ourselves. And sort of the theme for my whole career was learning from others that have been successful, you know, watching and, and listening and not being afraid to reach out and, and, again, try to steal their ideas. So I learned from a guy named Richard Kreider that's uh, an expert in, in sports physiology. He now works at Texas A&M. Uh, about training, about the physiology of training, about the physiology of um, periodization, about training all the systems that are uh, important for tennis players. You know, when I was coming up as a tennis player, I was trained or taught to train uh, kind of for explosive movements. You know, tennis are short points and you've got to be explosive. Um, well, that ignores the fact that you can play for three hours, right? So you have to train that system too. And it also ignores the fact that that you can have a lactate threshold can be crossed. And so you've got to train that system. So you've got to train all three systems. And I think that we, and as I've done consulting now, not many people know that. Uh, they don't have that kind of education. And so we worked really hard, but I think also really smart. Um, so that gave us a big advantage. And I think the other thing, maybe a little misunderstanding, we really did turn the program over in terms of personnel very quickly. Um, uh, you know, when I came into my first meeting at Baylor, we had 24 players come to the meeting and oh God. Giving, yeah. And, and, you know, a lot of them were just getting a t-shirt, you know, really, you know, they weren't really committed to playing on the team and the team was very, it was almost recreational. You know, there were some serious players, but there were some recreational players mm -hmm. on Thanksgiving day. We had three players. Um, so, you know, we, we changed the roster pretty quickly and we oh. brought five guys in, in January. 
So that's first spring. We were essentially a whole new team. Um, and, and I think that's, that really was the reason we made such a quick turnaround is that we were able to sort of reshape the roster, you know, pretty quickly. Um, okay. And three guys that stayed were superstars, you know, not great tennis players, but, you know, but great guys, you know, just, you know, program guys, team guys, hardworking guys that just were really committed to trying to be a part of what we were trying to do. Mm. So we'll get into recruiting in a second, but just around sports science, did, did you have a sports science background? Is that something you'd studied in college or? or? No, I just thought I was interested in, you know, because of what we're doing. I, I, I think my first thing and anybody on here that hasn't read Chuck Creasy's book uh, about coaching, uh, you know, I know it's an old book now, but I read it cover to cover. You know, uh, Chuck signed one for me at Kalamazoo when I was assistant and I read that baby cover to cover probably three times, you know, and, you know, Chuck was incredibly successful and, you know, his thing was the mile, you know, we're going to go run the mile under 515 and, mm-hmm. um, you know, we get up in the morning and we're going to keep running that mile. And when I was the assistant, my first college job was I was assistant at South Alabama and we did that. We, we ran the mile there. And so that was kind of my first look glimpse at, you know, training hard, um, kind of following in Chuck's footsteps and some of the other stuff he did. And, and that kind of led me to just educating myself about ways that we could work extremely hard but also do it a little bit smarter, maybe, um, and 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 go from there. And I was, again, I was surrounded by people that were great. Richard Kreider being one. Coach Hart, you know, who was the Olympic coach for the 400 meters, was the Baylor track coach. Um, and it's funny, the 400 meters is a lot like tennis. You know, one of the things that Coach Hart taught me was he was the first coach to teach his guys to run slow in practice. And that sounds funny, right? And he said, look. Watch the 400 meters with Michael Johnson or Jeremy Warner or any of these guys that are winning the gold medal. They seem to accelerate on that final turn, right? And it, everyone else, it's not that they're accelerating, it's that everyone else is getting slower, right? Because they're going into oxygen debt. Mm-hmm. And they're, they're locking up and our guys aren't locking up. And that's because he developed other systems beyond just sprinting, you know, anaerobic. He developed the aerobic system as well, the lactate system, so that his guys could maintain their speed basically over 400 meters. I thought that really made a lot of sense for tennis. Um, and again, I stole every good idea coach Hart had about training and, and it really helped me a lot. Uh, and we really improved the way that we, we got our guys ready. And so do you think maybe coaches these days are maybe deferring too much to their strength and conditioning coaches or, or other, I guess, experts um, on their campus if they have access to them and not taking enough responsibility for understanding sports science? Personally, yes, absolutely. I mean, I was at every single strength workout, every string, every running thing we did, everything we did and, and had a leadership role in all those things and partnered with the strength coach. You know, a lot of times in tennis, you get a, you get a GA, right. Who, who maybe doesn't know that much, you know, and probably he doesn't come from a tennis background or, you know, as things have become a little more siloed, you have the money to bring in a, a, an expert, you know, maybe from outside the athletic department, they can come in and train your guys. But again, I think that you've got to, you've got to help him help you, you know, get smarter, you know, and, and improve. And I think it, I do think it's a mistake. And one of the things that I've seen in consulting with teams is, uh, either they're not invested in that part of it enough or they because they they just hand it over to a GA or they bring in an expert and they just walk out of the room and let that guy do everything. And I think that you're missing a lot of opportunities you know, to improve. I think that's something you continue to tweak. And I think the other piece is you know, that's a, to make an emotional connection with your guys. A lot of that can be done off the court. You know, it's one thing when you're teaching a guy how to improve his tennis. 
but but when you're you kind of take a step back, you know, your role as someone that's maybe working out with him or standing next to him working out, you can you can support him in a different way, I think, than you can just on the tennis court. And I think about tennis at the level that we're playing, there are a lot of guys that really have deficits relative to their physical development. You know, we don't get a lot of guys in college tennis that look like Rafael Nadal, you know, that they're really fully developed, you know. So I think that that piece, you know, if you've got 10 guys on your team, there's a pretty good chance that three of them really need the help, you know, in the weight room and on the track. You know, you may have a few that are well-developed there that maybe don't need that as much, mm-hmm. but really do. And I think it's an opportunity to really help a guy improve. It also helps the guy's confidence. You know, it's amazing. You know, if the guy's the best, has the best VO2 max on your team or the best squad or the best, whatever it is, you know, he feels like a stud, you know, and everybody needs to feel like a stud once in a while. Um, sometimes it's even a guy that's your six, seven guy. He goes in the weight room, feels like King Kong and he can lead in, in those areas. And, and one of the things I'm a huge believer in, in, in college tennis is everybody has an opportunity to lead. You know, whether it's I have the best forehand or I win the most matches or I run the fastest, whatever it is, find ways for your guys to feel good about themselves. You know, and if, if weight room is a place for a guy to do that, then then I think you're missing an opportunity if you don't jump in with that. Very good. And so taking you back to, again, first couple of years at, at Baylor and I had the, the pleasure of playing against some of those early teams and, and, and you know, knowing just how good some of those players were and, and Hodge and Eusta and Williams, you know, you said you brought in five players that, that first year. How, how do you go about convincing these very good players with lots of options as to where they could go to college to come to Baylor when you said had hardly won a match for many years, um, had no tradition, no recent success. Uh, how, how'd you go about doing that? Well, and again, to be clear, they didn't have a lot of options. You know, I think that a lot of these guys that you mentioned, we wouldn't have taken, uh, in 2000 or 2005 or, or, you know, once we got going, but we found guys that no one else was recruiting. Um, Williams used as an example, you know, you still went to a really competitive academic high school in Pretoria, um, all boys school, really serious academics. He didn't play tournaments outside of his country. He was ranked number one in South Africa, but he had no ITF experience. And when I talked to people, uh, that were out playing the ITFs or coaching the ITF guys, uh, that were maybe from South Africa or whatever, I'd say, you know, tell me about him. And they all told me he was terrible. I terrible. He can't play. <laughs> Uh, I knew a guy that was a little older, a guy named Johanna Simon, who I'd met um, before, who was about 25, 26 and was still playing, you know, men's open tournaments. And he was from the same city. So I called Johannes and I said, hey, you know, this guy used to. He said, you know what I do? I played him in the semis of a men's open uh, and the guy's unbelievable. I beat him four and four and the guy's fantastic. And this guy I knew was, a, you know, he's one of these 400 in the world type guys, you know, good player. And based on his recommendation, I took you on. Um, you know, David Hodge was recruited by no, no, no schools you've heard of. Um, Mark Williams was recruited by no schools you've heard of. Um, we basically just dug these guys out by sort of, you know, uh, triangulating. You know, I tried to get Jed Gould to come to Baylor. as a name some of you men on this call might remember. Jed was a top 50 ITF guy from Australia, and he had no interest in college tennis. But I asked the people around him, hey, who else is there in Australia that I should maybe consider? And that's how I heard Dave Hodge's name. Same thing. Went to high school. Parents were teachers. Didn't play ITS. Really didn't have much of a profile. You know, um, came over here as a 17-year-old kid. Weighed about 140 pounds. Um, scared to death. And, you know, ended up being a very good player for us. Mm-hmm. But 
once we got established, we didn't have to take, we didn't take those kind of risks anymore. Um, and, but we, you know, Kevin Qualk was my assistant at the time and we, you know, again, everybody says they work hard, but we might've worked 18 hours a day, you know, and that was before the days of the internet and, you know, we're calling all these tournament directors all over the world, the facts, uh, the draws from their qualities of their futures. Um, and, and that's what we did. We just dug guys out. Um, but we knew we had to. And, and so that's how we did it. Mm. And do you think those type of players, you know, with the internet now, UTR, WTN coming on, tennis recruiting, ITF, I, I mean, are, are those players still out there, do you believe? And, and how? Do 100% you- they're out there. 100% they're out there. Yeah. I mean, no question about it. Okay. Uh, so they're hard to find. Yeah. Like, they're guys, that, a lot of them go to school. You know, they, they really are serious about their academics. You know, as we know, a lot of top players go to, they go to school online or whatever, or homeschool. And so they're, they're not spending a ton of time in a brick and mortar classroom. And so they can practice, you mm-hmm. know, five, six hours a day. You know, we're talking about guys that practice maybe an hour a day or, you know, six hours a week or, you know, whatever, and play very few tournaments. And they, they need a little bit more time to develop, uh, but they're for sure out there. Um, you know, one of my great mentors was a, a man named B Rappaport who founded an insurance company here in Texas and was the richest man in Texas for a long time. Mm told me, uh, when you're a guppy, don't hunt where the sharks hunt. <laughs> and, and that was great advice, you know, and, and I learned that there are certain programs at Baylor, we couldn't beat in recruiting, uh, you know, and even when we were one in the country, you know, if we went against certain programs that are in sexy towns that have uh, good tradition, good academics, as soon as they offered the kid a scholarship, we were done. And when I found out that school X or Y was recruiting this kid, I just let him go, you know, and find somebody else. Um, nothing worse than finishing second. You know, you, and I've done that more times than I can count, you know, mm-hmm. go off, do all the work in the world. And then the kid goes someplace else and he's really sorry, but Hey coach, I'm going someplace else. And you got nothing for that. You know, you, you don't want to finish second. Um, you got to be okay with, you know, hunting where you can, where you can succeed. And I think these guys were examples of that, you know, where we found guys that frankly, no one else found. And what were some of the traits that you were maybe looking for? You were identified, obviously, you, there was people that you trust, connections that you'd made that you trust their opinions. But what were those traits you hoped that they, they had um, to be able to elevate your program at Baylor to that next level? We talk a ton about team. You know, that was a really big theme. And, and I really like the idea that a guy from South Africa, you know, played rugby, you know, to in the team environment, you know, uh, a guy from Australia that had been in a team environment with, with other sports, um, you know, Mark Williams played cricket, you know, Dave played cricket, you know, they had, they had that experience. Um, the German guys all play club tennis, you know, so they get what a team is. Um, so that was a big piece to me. The other piece was athleticism. And I think when you look at our early teams, a guy like Johannes Michalski, Johannes didn't even make the nationals in Germany. You know, he was just a sectional level player, basically but he was a great athlete. Um, he couldn't hit a backhand. He had a big serve. He had a big forehand and he was an incredible athlete. And, you know, that's a guy that, you know, by the time he got a couple of years in the program, you know, he was as good at the bottom of the lineup as anybody, you know, I mean, he, could be any, he was competitive with any team in the country at the five, six slot. Um, so yeah, we had athleticism. And I think when you look at Williams, Hodge, used uh, those guys, Michalski, all really good athletes. Um, those were things that we tried to identify. Okay. And then just, I mean, even before you got to Baylor, so your assistant coach at, at South Alabama, assistant coach at Kansas, 
Uh, I'm not sure if you were anywhere else, Matt. Was it just those two places you were assisting? Well, honestly, the best experience I had was being the head coach at Northern Iowa. Uh, okay. Between those two play, those two assistance jobs, I was the head coach at Northern Iowa. And what made that so fantastic um, was the AD was a man named Chris Retrieve, who had wrestled at Princeton and been an associate AD at Stanford. And we really connected. And he mentored me a lot. He helped me a lot with understanding how to learn from other championship programs. And so I, I invested a lot of energy into learning about what Stanford was doing with Dick Gould. Um, I invested a lot of energy into learning what Dan Gable, the wrestling coach at Iowa, was doing, who's just a legend. Um, you know, John Wooden, you know, read everything on John Wooden that exists. Um, and, and others, you know, that were championship coaches and felt like those things would translate to what we were trying to do in tennis. And, and, and they helped me a lot. Uh, Chris really invested in me a great deal taught me a lot about how to run a program. And then when I went to Kansas, we were much better. I was only at UNI for one year. We were a non-scholarship program. You know, we really had no opportunity to get good. I took that job for $4,500. So if anybody ever complains about how much money they're making, <laughs> a good story. Um, I, taught, uh, I taught four tennis classes and two racquetball classes so I could make enough to eat. Um, Kansas, and we were, we were way better. You know, we made the Sweet 16 um, my second year there. Uh, lost to Georgia at Georgia, won the doubles point, you know, so we were kind of in there, you know, and so we were in the national indoor, we were in the sweet 16, we were in the arena some, um, and I learned a lot about, you know, how to go from a program at that level to, you know, things I thought were important to help us go to the next level. Mm. And so when you got to Baylor, then you had a pretty clear understanding of, of some of the steps that you needed to take in order to, to build that program up to, to maybe not that national championship level that, that you ultimately got to. But can you maybe take us through some of the things you prioritize, say, in your first six months at Baylor? Well, again, recruiting, recruiting, recruiting. And I think if anybody thinks that's not what it's all about, they're, they're missing the boat at the highest level, right? And you know, Roy Williams told me, you know, Roy was the basketball coach at Kansas. And he said, you know, it's recruiting is like shaving. Everybody can see when you miss a day. And, and that, again, you'd be Mike Krzyzewski, the greatest coach ever. But if you're, if you've got Mullins and Kamal out there, you're not winning any basketball games, you know? Um, so to even get into the arena, you've got to have great players. And so we spent a, just a tremendous amount of time recruiting, you know, trying to find people and also trying to evaluate people. You know, it's one thing to, you know, here's a guy and, you know, maybe he's got some ATP points or whatever his deal is, but, you know, can, can he fit with what you're trying to do? You know, is he going to, is he going to be a guy that can help you take it to the level that you're trying to take it? It's tough, you know, to evaluate people, you know, from a distance for one. Um, and two, you just don't get enough chance to watch them, you know, and be around them and be around their people to really figure out, you know, who you're dealing with. Um, the other piece was again, working incredibly hard. Um, we worked really hard in practice. Everything was team, team, team. Everything we did was team. Um, you know, uh, behavior on the court, you know, one guy throws his racket, everybody runs. You know, one guy's late, everybody runs. Uh, one guy misses a class, everybody gets up in the morning. Um, uh, you know, everything's about representing the program in a first-class way. Uh, we really felt like you could make great grades and be a, a national championship-level program, and we talked about that every single day. Um, that was a huge theme. Um, we talked about grades every day. Uh, and, and again, everybody invested in it because of that. Uh, what other things I think were important? Um, schedule. All right, we didn't have a schedule, you know, because we were not a national program. So I knew a lot of coaches and, and they would agree that if we'd come to them uh, and, and beat them, then they would come back to play us. 
So we were all the time, you know, and so we were, you know, we were up for taking it on, you know, and so that was kind of our, our mantra, you know, we're going to go out there and just play the best and we're going to get on the road and make a go of it. Now we didn't have a budget that would support that. So we stayed with families a lot. You know, we'd, we'd stay in their pool house or, you know, sleep on their floor or whatever um, just so we could afford to make it happen. And another thing that was kind of cool, sort of a long story, but our marketing guy made a deal with uh, Continental, which flew out of Waco and they were like a sponsor. And one of their thing was they gave us, I don't know, a hundred free tickets. And so he comes into a coach's meeting and says, Hey, anybody want these free tickets? And I'm like, I'll take all of them. <laughs> and the other coaches didn't want them because you had to make the connections. The connections weren't great. You know, you couldn't go when you wanted to go. You had to go when these free tickets were available. We'd spend eight, 10 hours in the Houston airport. Like we'd get out of Waco, take a little flight to Houston and we have to wait eight or 10 hours to get the flight that we could all get on to go to wherever our destination was. But we were up for it. They're like, guys, just bring your books. We're going to study, you know, we're going to make the best of it. And the guys, you know, it was kind of cool. You know, in a lot of ways, when you have that kind of stuff, it brings you together. You know, look, we're out here grinding it out. You know, guys are napping on the floor in the airport and studying and uh, we're staying on the floor. You know, and how housing is, anybody that's played tennis has stayed in housing. Great housing is amazing. Bad housing is awful. <laughs> and we had some great housing and we had some bad housing. <laughs> you know, we, you know, we, we stayed in, uh, we played Tulane. We pull up to this mansion, you know, right by the campus. And we're like, oh my gosh, we've won the lottery. You know, we're going to stay in this beautiful home. And the woman meets us and walks us around back by the pool. And there's this pool house. that's basically like a shed. <laughs> like, Coach, really? You know, so we're basically sitting on the floor of the, on the tile of a pool house, you know? Um, so anyway, we had, we had, you know, it was ups and downs, you know, and, and that made us better, you know, it pulled us together and we had a great team spirit and we had a good attitude about it and it was fun. Yeah. Uh, it sounds like a lot of fun. Um, so on March 30th, we're going to do a, a webinar with the coaches so that they can ask you questions directly, give you some scenarios, some of the things they're dealing with. Um, but also you are consulting with, with some top programs around the country, and we won't mention any names or anything like that. But are there any common mistakes you see now that when you're, you're, you're coming into these programs and evaluating, are there any themes that you see that, that coaches are consistently making the same mistakes over and over? Or is it very different from one place? to another well first i want to talk about what they do well i think there's sort of a theme there they 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 work extremely hard um they're really committed to, to being good uh you know you mentioned that i'm doing consulting and that's part of what i'm doing another thing i'm doing is i'm placing uh you know high school prospects with programs i'm doing that with you know high d1 kids all the way down to low d3 kids <laughs> you'd be if i call i'm thinking of a coach in particular if i call this coach and say coach i've got enough a kid that's going to play four for you he doesn't need a scholarship and he's ready to come in August. This guy is going to get up from his daughter's wedding and take the call and make sure that that happens. And he's going to call the guy that minute. And his daughter's going to be disappointed that she has to wait for her wedding to get started because her dad's making a recruiting call and his wife is a little unhappy about it, but they know that's the way it works. You know, if we're going to be committed you know, to be the best team in the country, if dad's got a player, he's going to get up and he's going to take that call and he's going to follow up with that kid right then. He's not going to wait till next weekend to call him. The top coaches are like that as a group. I have coaches where I'll make that same call and they won't call a kid. A week later, I'll follow up and say, hey, coach, did you get a hold of so-and-so? Yeah, I haven't had a chance to get a hold of him. You know, okay. You know, <laughs> well, here's his number again. You know, he's, 
He'll walk on. He's going to play in your lineup. You know, he's, he's got a 4-0. Please give him a call when you get a chance. You know, I have that conversation a lot. Um, and, and so that's the difference between the, the top, top guys, in my view, and the people that aren't at the very, very top. It's just commitment and investment uh, to what they're doing. To be very good, to be at the very top is exhausting. You know, you, these guys are working all day, every day. <laughs> um, it really is a lot. Uh, so I give these guys a lot of credit, particularly the ones that have done it for a long time consistently. It's really impressive. It uh, yeah. The mistake I think they make maybe is this one. You know, I, I was lucky. I played team sports in high school. I was late to tennis. Um, so I've had the experience of being the best player on the team and the worst player on the team. Um, I've been the sophomore in high school on the bench in basketball when you're winning the game by 20 points and there's 30 seconds to go and the coach looks down and you're like, Oh gosh, please don't put me in. You know, embarrassed. Um, he puts you in, you run down the floor one time, everybody jumps up and down. You don't really know. You don't really feel comfortable because you really didn't do anything, you know? And then you go in the locker room and you're like, should I shower? I really didn't sweat, you know? You know? And so that's kind of awkward and you know, it's really different. And the, the coaches don't, as a group, particularly the top coaches, don't know how to relate to that kid emotionally because they were good players. You know, almost all the best coaches were also very, very good players. Mm-hmm. So they don't really understand the emotional makeup of a guy that's on the six, seven borderline. You know, that guy that doesn't know if he's going in next match is, has a very different you know, emotional makeup and approach than the guy that's the All-American that's playing number one. Um, and I think as a group, the, the top coaches – relate to the top guys really well that are pro prospects maybe or, or superstars, but they don't really, they can't see the game through the eyes of the guys that are at the bottom. And so that, that breaks down the fabric of the team, right? You, you really have a hard time having a unified, you know, sense of spirit if you have guys that are a little fractured in that regard. And I think that's one of the things that I've really tried to help people with is if, if we're really going to be a team, if we're really going to lift each other up, you know, at the key moments, which can make a difference, you know, in a four, three match in the semis, um, you really have to invest in these guys that are maybe not playing or playing some of the time more maybe than you do with the guys that are the superstars. You know, I think that's one thing that, that can be a hole with some of the coaches. The other is what we talked about is maybe not taking advantage about of all the ways to improve strength and conditioning is an example, you know, maybe take advantage of that, you know, take advantage of, uh, of a sports psychologist. You know, if you've got 10 guys, maybe, maybe nine of them couldn't care less about sports psychologists, but maybe one of them is going to really catch on with that. And it's going to make a huge difference in their performance. Nutrition, again, maybe nine of the guys don't need it, but maybe one of them does, you know, and if you just can make an impact on that one guy, you know, that's enough of a difference to help you win a close match at the end of the year, you know, versus lose a close match at the end of the year. Um, a lot of coaches are super competitive, which is great. But in my view, they sort of pound their head against the wall a little too much. And then at the end of the year, they're tired. You know, I think you have to find a way to be fresh at the end. Dick Gould was a genius at this. I mean, I'll never forget the year UCLA had an unbelievable team and they beat Stanford three times over the course of the year. And then Stanford beat him in the final. Um, and again, Dick was just a genius about not using up his bullets, you know, early, you know, he had a lot of strategies he used to help make that happen. Uh, and I think that's a perfect example of how they just, they played better at the end, you know, and that's the only thing that mattered. Um, I think some people, you know, maybe if you're a great program, I don't know if it's that important that you win conference for the 10th time in a row. Mm. 
and everybody wants to win. I mean, I'm not saying suggesting you don't try hard, but maybe it's better that you focus a little bit more on the end goal if your goal is to achieve a national championship. Mm-hmm. Oh, thank you for sharing those things. That's great. Um, I'm just going to give you a, a few other scenarios uh, that I think we see quite often. I mean, one of the things is uh, getting into kind of a ranking rut, right? We're a 1 to 20 program. We're a 21 to 40 program. We're a 75 to 125. And, and uh, very coaches can be quite accepting of that. And um, how would you advise? So if maybe you're taking over a program that traditionally has been, let's say, 50 to 75 in the rankings and, and they want to make a push, they want to be in the NCAA tournament at least every year and get to that next kind of top 40 range. What are some of the things that, that you might advise or get them to think differently about? Well, again, it's recruiting, right? I mean, the reason that you're you're 50 in the country is that you have 50 in the country talent. You know, one reason, right? I mean, that's a big part of it. it it's really hard to have the best talent and be 50 in the country. Um, so I, I think that a lot of times I see coaches when I'm talking to them in this role now, you know, they've got a spot, they've got a guy, they're not really that sold on him, but they don't really have anybody else. And so they take him, you know, yep. and and then you're you're stuck at the level for four years, you know? It's not, this is a thing I really believe in. It's not the guys you don't get that kill you. It's the guys you do get that kill you. They're the wrong guys. You know, mm-hmm. if, if, nobody's sitting around, no coach is sitting around going, you know, wow, I wish I would have got so-and-so, but they are sitting around going, wow, this guy is a turd and he's making my life miserable and he makes everybody else's life miserable. And guess what? He's not even that good. And I'm stuck with him for three and a half more years. Right. That's you want coaches to be miserable. Get a couple of guys on the team that are unmanageable, difficult, not great people. Mm-hmm. Uh, you're not in your head a lot. So I know you've had that experience. Mm-hmm. I know. it Well, I'm putting my hand up right there. <laughs> <laughs> and again, I think that coaches in terms of red flags, we've all done it. I've done it. Ignore red flags. You know, look, here's here's something that happened in the recruiting process that I probably should have paid a little more attention to. You know, he was. Uh, you know, I had one, I went on a recruiting trip. I sat down with the parents and the, and the prospect and the prospect was rude to his father at the table. You know, told his father, I think he told him to shut up. And, you know, I, you know you're like, wow. I, I was actually kind of starting to duck under the table because I thought the dad was going to backhand him. You know, I'm waiting, for, I'm waiting for contact, you know, and dad just kind of shrugged his shoulders and moved on. Well, I took that guy because um, he was a really good tennis player and it didn't work out. You know, it just, it just was a bad, it was bad on my part. It wasn't because he wasn't great at tennis. It wasn't because he wasn't great in school because he was, but he just wasn't, it was, it didn't work out, you know? And so that's a huge red flag that I chose to ignore because of his tennis level. Um, so I think don't ignore red flags and don't be afraid to not take a guy. You know, you've got to have confidence. You've got to work hard enough in recruiting that you've got other guys you can take. And, and so, you know, for me, you've got to have a guy, a backup to the guy, a backup to the backup to the guy, and a double backup to that guy, you know, because things don't work out sometimes or you see a red flag late in the process and you've got to have someone else that you can take. Um, now, sometimes the danger is you get down to where maybe you only have six guys that can play tennis, you know, or six girls that are competent players. So you're walking on the borderline a little bit and that's scary. That's not comfortable, but gosh, I'd rather have, you know, six or seven pretty good players that are the right kind of people than, you know, five and then two that are not the right kind of people, you know, that pollutes the whole atmosphere and, and ruins a season and, and a program, frankly. Um, but again, don't take the wrong player. 
you know, have confidence that you can go out and find the right player, even if that player is unknown to you at the moment. You know, dig in and work hard. Find right, find the right, right person. And another scenario that, that coaches often face, especially if they stay in the business long enough, where they're going into a season, they have, you know, certain expectations, hopefully high expectations for their team. And then it's just a, a series of, of uh, events, you know, losing players to injury. Maybe somebody has to go home. Maybe they have a, a, a an illness in the family, say. Maybe somebody's ineligible all of a sudden. You thought you were going to have, you know, a, a freshman that was going to be ready to play day one but now something's come up and they're ineligible and you're you're throughout the season just kind of getting decimated losing matches you didn't think you were going to lose <laughs> how do you help a coach work through that because for most coaches that's that feels like the end of the world and and what advice would you give to those coaches especially this year during covid where you know teams are 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 being decimated they are maybe down to four or five players because they've had to leave players at home for for covid and contact tracing any advice you'd have there well, I think it's all the same stuff you would tell anybody that's dealing with high stress, right? And, and, and difficult situations, you know, um, you know, exercise, have people you can talk to, um, understand that you're in the same boat as everybody else. And the scenarios that you're describing uh, often have nothing to do with you. You know, you, you can only control what you can control. And if, you know, if people have illnesses or have tragedies in their family, or we have a, a pandemic, you know, look, let's not try to control that. Let's try to make the best of that. And, 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 and recognize that that's the situation that we're in. Um, you know, I think one of the things I think is really important that, that you can control is I think just educating your players about the difference between being injured and being hurt. And, and I think that that's something that we dealt with a lot. Um, I always use the example, you know, when was the last time that, you know, that a, a championship performer didn't play in the NBA finals or didn't play in the World Cup final or the Wimbledon final or the Super Bowl um, because they had a niggly injury, you know, everybody, everybody's hurt. Every elite athlete is, doesn't feel perfect. You know, there's just no chance you're going to get to the end of an NFL, NBA, uh, ATP, NCA season and feel hundred percent perfect. That's just the way it is. And, and I think a lot of, uh, the people that we dealt with and a lot of people that we're all coaching, you know, feel like, you know, my back hurts a little bit. I'm going to just, I'm going to sit, sit down today, you know? Okay, if you're injured, then absolutely you sit down. You know, we get you the best treatment possible. We get you doctors. We get you a surgery. We do whatever needs to be do, you know, done to take care of you and make sure you're fine. But if, if your back hurts a little bit, we probably need you to play, you know, because, again, the other guys on the other team, their back hurts too. You know, their shoulder's sore. You know, they, they twisted an ankle six weeks ago, and they're not feeling perfect. And I think that education really made a big impact for us where I can't tell you how many times someone would come in and say as a freshman or a young player, you know, coach, I, I, I had the flu or I, my back hurts a little. I don't think I can play. And we talk about, you know, look, just go out and do your best. And we understand you're not going to be a hundred percent, but you know, everybody's a little beat up and then they perform great. And they'd come in and go, wow, you know, I, I, I've never played, but I didn't feel perfect before, you know, and, and I, I got out there and got into it. I, look, I, it turns out I actually played pretty well, you know, and I was actually pretty happy with how I played. And, and it helped me to focus a little bit better because I was dealing with something that was, you know, different than what I dealt with before. And Dave, I can't tell you how many former players have called me after they've got into the work environment and, and, and frankly thanked me for teaching them that. You know, I had a guy that works for a big software company that's very famous and he had a big presentation. It was a multi-level deal. And he was driving to the office that morning and was had the flu and was happened to stop the car and throw up out the side of the car. 
you know, and then he gets to the building and he's running into the bathroom and throwing up and he has to take a break from the meeting to go to the bathroom and throw up. But he's got, you know, he's got the leaders from this major corporation in the room. He can't cancel the meeting. You know, it's a, it's a $50 million deal. You know, he can't say, I don't feel good today. You know, he, he toughed it out and he got the deal, you know, and, and he told me, look, if I hadn't played, you know, in college at Baylor and learned that you can find a way, you know, to get through difficult situations when you don't, you know, when you're in this case, hurt, <laughs> um, you know, then I would have never, I, would have, I might have canceled, you know, I might have had somebody that worked with me take the meeting and we might not have got the deal. Right. Um, so I think that resilience and that, uh, that toughness is super important when you're dealing with issues that you can control, you know, uh, when you're dealing with issues you can't control, then you have to just let go of the wheel and be okay with understanding that, you know, there's a bigger picture out there and, and, and let things happen the way they happen. Yeah. And and one more scenario for you, Matt, just especially in this time as, as we're concerned about the safety of college tennis programs. Obviously, we've seen a lot cut across all divisions here over the last several months. And obviously, something we want to encourage our, our coaches to do is, you know, ensure they have a, a, a a direct line with their athletic director and, and a good relationship with their athletic director. So if there's maybe a coach out there listening, who's maybe meeting at a program, you know, five, six years, they maybe connect with the AD once a year, maybe once every two years, they're obviously in staff meetings, but don't really have a relationship. Um, how, how would you encourage them to develop more of a relationship and, and, and help make tennis more relevant in the eyes of the AD? Yeah, this is an important subject, right? Super important. I think the problem is a lot of ADs just won't engage with the tennis coach. There's just nothing you can do. You know, you can you can try to find common ground with a hobby. Hey, let's go for a jog. You know, let's play racquetball. Um, something that maybe is out of the office that maybe would encourage him to invest in you. But sometimes that's just not possible, you know? So I think what you do instead is you, you develop relationships with people that are key in the athletic department, that are outside the athletic department, donors. You know, if... If, uh, you know, if you've got close relationships with people that are giving six and seven figure gifts, then all of a sudden you're important, you know, and, and the AD might not care much about the tennis coach, but they might care about Mr. Jones, who just gave five million dollars to football or five million dollars to the biology department or whatever it is. Mm-hmm. He knows that he cares about you and that makes you important, you know, within the eyes of the administration. Raising money is a huge piece of what tennis coaches have to do. And look, we've seen with some other programs that have recently been dropped, it's not the cure-all, you know, you can still lose your job um, or lose your program. But boy, it sure is a good start. And I think if there's a, you know, like at Baylor, if there's a $25 million tennis facility sitting out there in Waco, it makes it a lot harder to drop the program than if that doesn't sit there. Um, So I think, you know, go out, build facilities, um, you know, build relationships with key people in the community, even if you can't break through with your administration. Um, uh, you know, so I think those things are important, you know, and I think that that also takes time. And, and that's one of the things I talk a lot with the teams I consult with about how to do that, you know, how to, how to build relationships with donors, how to fundraise, how to friend raise. I think they're different. Friend raise is uh, everybody pays 25 bucks and comes out and plays with the guys and needs a hot dog. Fundraise is six figure gifts and above. And those are skill sets. And I think they're both really, really important. Um, so I think a, a really successful coach does a good job with both. Yeah. And and Matt, we're actually doing a, a study of the Division One model right now. And Snodgrass Partners and, and USTA are, are heavily involved in that. And one of the things that came out was that 
I think less than uh, or 70% of our coaches raise less than $10,000 per year, but 92% of them are allowed to raise funds. So sometimes, you know, at certain institutions, the coach isn't allowed to go in there and, you know, develop that relationship or take money away from the athletic department. So it sounds like that's not really the case in tennis. The majority of them, the vast majority, 92% are allowed to do that. Um, but 70% raise less than 10,000. And, and so what are some initial steps or again, advice you would give to a coach who's maybe struggled in that area? How can they become better fundraisers, better relationship builders? Well, again, use good models. You know, the best model I can think of for a mid-major would be AM Corpus Christi. You know, uh, they've got, I think they have more Facebook likes than any other tennis program in the country. Uh, they do a newsletter. They do a ton of different uh, events with donors. Um, and again, Steve, Steve Moore down there in Corpus is from Corpus, but he's really invested in the community and, and he's like the mayor down there. You know, everybody knows him because he's, he's putting his face out there. He's doing the work, you know, away from the court to build those kind of relationships. If, if, I, was, if I was one of the guys you're describing that's raising five ten thousand dollars $10,000 a year, I would immediately call Steve Moore and say, man, I got to get a half hour of your time and, and you tell me how you're doing it uh, and copy him. It's a great starting place. You know, maybe it's hard for you from 5,000 to get to, you know, 25 million, but you can sure get to, I don't know what his number is, but I bet it's 60, 70 grand a year from sort of small donations. You know, I don't know if he's writing in massive checks, but he's able to fund kind of everything he wants to do um, by grinding it out and, and raising money in small increments. And you also, great investment from the community, right? If, you know, if I give you a, you know, a few hundred bucks, I'm a lot more likely to read your newsletter. I'm a lot more likely to come to your matches. And, and that's, that all has a lot of benefit. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Steve is actually on my list of, of people to interview for, for this podcast. A uh, few people have mentioned Steve, so I definitely need to get him on and share some of his story there. So just in terms of the, the next generation of coaches, as we sit here in 2021, uh, Lots going on around us in the world of college athletics, obviously. Uh, what what skills do coaches need to develop? Um, you know, you, you're talking maybe now to a 21, 22, 23-year-old who's interested in, in following a similar path that you did and, and having great success at, at the top of Division One college tennis. Where Where do they need to be putting their energy right now? What skills do they need to be learning? Yeah, great question. I, I think that coaching has become more and more, uh, you're more and more of a CEO than you are a coach. Um, you know, and that's something else I see with the top coaches is they've got a lot on their plate. They're doing a lot of different things. Um, so I think develop your fundraising skills. Um, think a lot about um, what's the best fit for you in terms of your assistant coach. You know, uh, some of the top coaches maybe don't coach that much, right? They spend a majority of their time uh, recruiting or raising money or doing other things off the court. And maybe their assistant coach does most of the coaching. Um, there are some really clear examples of that. Uh, another team I work with is at the very top. The head coach does all the coaching and the assistant coach kind of does all the other stuff, you know, that, that has to do with, with, with how to be successful as a program. So I think understanding who you are and, and, and finding people that can fit well with you. I think that's a big situation, an important thing. I think also the alignment between you and the athletic department, you know, I mean, maybe, maybe you'd be really successful at, you know, at UCLA and Harvard and Mississippi state, but maybe you're more suited to, you know, one or the other, 
you know, and I think that if, if that's the case, then, you know, try to be realistic about where you're going to be successful um, and try to, again, find a good fit, you know, find good alignment with your administration, um, educate yourself, you know, steal ideas from other people. Uh, and that's, what's cool about what you're doing. I wish when I was an assistant, we'd have had this, I'd have been stopping this up like crazy. Cause again, steal other people's good ideas. Um, there are a lot of original ideas out there, you know, find, find things out there that will help you educate yourself about business. You know, I, I think it's funny. I talk to a lot of coaches about business and, and I start talking and their eyes glaze over immediately just when I use basic business terms. You know, you've got to know what your budget is. You've got to study it. You've got to understand, uh, you know, what, what's out there for you and how you can enhance it with fundraising. If you do enhance it, what what makes a difference? You know, um, you know, my first AD said, Texas wastes more money than we're going to spend to beat them. And, and at the time it was right. You know, our budget, I think my first year at Baylor, the athletic budget was $18 million, if you can imagine that. Um, but they were doing things like, you know, they put turf down and then they tore it up and put grass down. And then they tore that up and put different turf down. And then they tore that up and put grass down. You know, they, they spent whatever, $2 million every time. You know, they spent a whole I'd like to budget, budget just tearing up their turf. Um, you know, so again, there's ways to have money, but you got to use it in a smart way. Um, and figure out things that will help you enhance, you know, what your vision is. Definitely. And then lastly, Matt, what is some of the best advice you received earlier in your coaching career? You talked about uh, not, not swimming with the sharks, but uh, is there some other advice you received maybe from another college coach uh, early in your career that's really sat with you during your time at Baylor? Again, it's all about recruiting. I think Roy Williams, you know, when I went to Kansas, Roy was the coach at Kansas. Roy Williams is now at North Carolina. And he was, it was great. He actually came to all the meetings. He engaged, he, he contributed. So, you know, it's a head coaches or a coaches meeting. And here's the best guy in the country, maybe, who's actually got something to say that's helping a young guy like me who's clueless. And then he'd come up to me in the hallway and talk to me like, like I was a real, you know, like he respected me. I remember the first day he bumped into me in the hall. He's like, Matt, I'm just so glad you're here. You know, the, the head coach told me you were coming. We're just so honored to have you. Can't like, you know, are you kidding me? <laughs> I don't even, I just got to know who I am, you know, but he was great. And again, his theme all the time was recruiting, you know, recruit, 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 you know, find a way to, where are you going to get players? You know, where are you going to get players? Maybe you're going to get players from the USDA training center down there. Maybe you're going to get them from Bolivia. Maybe you're going to get them from, you know, your state school and you're going to do a great job with the kids in your state. Um, wherever that is, but figure out where you're going to get players and, and work really hard to, you know, improve that pipeline, add to that pipeline and, and do a super job with that. Because again, if you're not getting players, then you can't do any of the other fun stuff you want to do because you're, you're miserable because you're losing too much. Yeah, sure. Well, Matt, that's, uh, you've, you've provided so much great advice there for our coaches uh, today. Really appreciate it. Um, coaches, we're going to do webinar, like I mentioned, on March 30th with, with Matt. So come prepared with your questions and scenarios. And Matt's going to drop uh, lots more wisdom on us. So Matt, I look forward to seeing you in a, in, a, in a few weeks' time on our webinar. Hey, thanks for having me. It's fun. Enjoy it.